0: On August 29, the Associated Press, the news agency, carried an iconic picture that captures the migrant crisis that is occurring in Europe. It is a picture of a dangerously overcrowded boat stranded off the coast of Libya. And this boat contained men and women Even with nursing babies desperately fleeing the war in Syria or poverty and persecution from other parts of Africa. This is a perilous journey to cross the treacherous Mediterranean Sea into Europe. And many boats have been stranded and capsized, and people have drowned. For this boatload, however, of people, they were saved because an Italian Coast Guard vessel became aware of their plight and came to their rescue. They were safe, they were delivered. As we reflect upon that picture of a dramatic deliverance, we are reminded of the picture of our own deliverance. A deliverance not from a watery grave. But a deliverance from eternal wrath. The passage before us in Second Timothy chapter 1. As we read in verses 1 to 12. Is about deliverance or salvation. Spiritual deliverance and spiritual salvation. The Apostle Paul writes this final epistle to Timothy, his son in the Lord, his protege. Very shortly he will be executed. And he writes to Timothy to encourage him to persevere in faithfulness to the gospel that he has received. Paul begins this epistle with greetings and blessings. He assures Timothy of his confidence that the faith that was revealed in his mother and in his grandmother is the same faith that is revealed in him and he encourages him to fan into flame to stir up the gift that has been given to him in chapter 2 in chapter 1 sorry and in verse 6 Stir up the gift, fan it into flame. The gift that he is speaking about, of course, is the gift of pastoral ministry, the gift to be a pastor. He must work at it. And then he reminds him that God did not give to him a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-control. In verse 8, Paul tells him, that is Timothy, that he must not be ashamed of the gospel, the testimony of the Lord, nor of his prisoner Paul himself, but he must share in the sufferings for the gospel. He must share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. And then it leads us to verse 9, where Paul begins to talk about salvation. In fact, verses 9 and 10 are believed to be fragments from an older hymn that Paul incorporates. There is no actual proof. But these two verses center attention upon the core of the gospel, what it means to be delivered, what it means to be saved. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul describes salvation, deliverance from the wrath of God and from eternal damnation that is hell. Paul describes this, salvation in terms of calling. This is a very important doctrine in the Pauline Epistles, the doctrine of calling. You see, in verse 9, he says to Timothy, having told him to suffer alongside with him in the gospel. He says he should suffer and bear suffering by the power of God. And then he says, who has saved us and called us. We need to understand that when he talks about God having saved us and called us, he's referring to one reality of salvation. But he refers to calling as that particular call of God that we receive in salvation. Theologians generally make a distinction between a general call that God issues to every man. God calls every man everywhere to repent. That is a call that goes out to every person in the universe. But there is a special call, a call that is endowed with power, a call not only which invites but empowers the one who hears to believe. This is the particular effective call. And this is the call that Paul's referred to as salvation, the call of God to salvation. I want to talk then about this call of God. I want us to deal first with the source of this effective call to salvation. Paul tells Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, Not of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And then he says, Who has called us and saved us, or who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. The first thing you note is the source of this effective call to salvation. Paul identifies God. You see, the the phrase, who has called us, the who, the relative clause, who has called us, who has saved us and called us. The who refers to God, the God who gives power to endure. Suffering is the God who has called us, the God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. The Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles, and when we talk of the pastoral epistles, we're talking about the epistles of 1 and 2, Timothy and Titus particularly. And they're called pastoral because Paul gives instructions for ministry, for pastoral service to these men, to Timothy and to Titus. But you'll find that in the pastoral epistles, Paul often speaks about God. We think of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy where he describes God now to the king who is eternal and immortal, to the only wise God. You see, God is eternal. God is a great, the great eternal king, the one who is above mortality, the one who cannot die, the one who is invisible. And who alone is wise. Frequently Paul refers to God as a living God. You find that in the pastoral epistles often. And it is this God, Paul says, who has called us effectively to salvation. He is a source of the effective call of salvation. This theme of God as the one who calls is repeated in the scriptures. Perhaps one of the best known texts where this is found is in Romans Chapter 8, 29 to 30, where Paul tells the Romans, he says, Of God, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, that is, God predestined, these he also called, And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is what we call the golden chain of salvation. Because in eternity past, God predestined some to salvation. He marked them out. He set them apart in eternity for salvation. And those whom he chose and those whom he predestined in eternity for salvation in time he called them and after calling them he declared them righteous he justifies them and later on he will glorify them but it is god who calls paul makes the same point in writing to the philippians when he says i press towards the goal of the upward call of god it is god who calls us unto heaven so god is the the source of this effective call to salvation But this call, as I have sought to distinguish from the general call, is a powerful call. It is a creative call. It is a life-giving call. It is not merely a summons, but a summons that is invested with power. Perhaps the most vivid picture of the kind of call we're talking about is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. By the time Jesus heard of Lazarus' death, And when he arrived at the graveside of Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. He had begun to decompose. That was pointed out to Jesus. But he delayed his coming because he wanted everyone to know and to be absolutely clear that Lazarus was dead and very dead. And so, he comes and he calls Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus received this call because the call opened his ears and gave him life and power. So similarly, the call of God which comes to us in our sins was not merely an invitation. It was a powerful, quickening, awakening call that enabled us to respond in faith and in repentance to God. But the call of God, at least the God who is the source of this call, this call is purposive. That is, it, it is not merely calling us from something, it is calling us to something. You get an inclination of this because in verse 9, here in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul says that God who has saved us, has called us with a holy calling. But the grammar there could be, it could at least be rendered who has called us to a holy calling there is a purpose to God's call when God calls us into salvation and then again the rest of the scriptures bear this out that when God calls us he calls us to something we need to know then that the call of God is first of all relational it is a call into a special relationship with Jesus Christ Paul informs the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 he says this God is faithful who has called us into the fellowship of his son our savior the Lord Jesus Christ God has called us not merely from sin but called us into a special relationship you need to know that salvation is to enter into an intimate spiritual bond with Christ It is always an intimate relationship. You see, here's a calling to us to come to Christ, to be joined to Christ, to be in a spiritual relationship with him. This call is not only directional because it is a call to Christ and therefore relational. It is a call that is eschatological, and the word eschatology just refers to the end. When we talk about in theology eschatology, we are talking about the things that will happen at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Well, the call of God to us is not merely a call for salvation in this life, but a call to glory, a call to heaven. Uh, Paul emphasizes this when he writes to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth to which he called you by our gospel. And here it is, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When God calls us, he calls us to Christ. But he calls us to obtain the glory, to share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, the apostle Peter, confirms this, that we are called to a glorious destination. He says, may the God of of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory... By Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. So I'm saying that God is a source of the call, the effective call to salvation. And this call is not only relational because it calls us into friendship and family and intimacy with Christ. Not only is it eschatological, but this call is a call that is ethical. And I think that this is at the heart of what we see in verse 9. When he says, of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. You see, the call is a holy calling because it comes from a holy God. And it is a calling to a holy way of life. So it is a holy calling. God has called us to a holy calling. To be holy people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 paul says to the church of god which is at current to those who are sanctified in christ jesus called to be saints who with all who in every place call on the name of the lord jesus christ but we are called to be saints it was rather intriguing that some i think earlier in this month the vatican made mother teresa of calcutta a saint that was a fascinating thing because really the term saint simply means holy Hagias means holy to be separated and only God can make a man or woman take a sinner and turn him into a saint you and I can go around you know you can proclaim me a saint and I can proclaim you a saint and we all proclaim one another saints but unfortunately such proclamations are useless only God can tell you that you are holy. Only God can proclaim a man or woman a saint. And a saint doesn't mean that we are special and above everybody else. Saint in the Bible means to be separate. Haggias means to be set apart. And Paul says, God has called us to be saints. Meaning to be separated from sin and to be dedicated and devoted to him. In fact, this... Is a repeated emphasis in Pauline writing. He tells the Thessalonians, he says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. 1 Peter 2:9, but you are a chosen generation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness, that is, out of the darkness of sin, into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2:9. So what am I saying? I'm saying then that. Salvation is perceived by Paul in this instance here in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10 as a calling, an effective calling. And the the source of this calling is God. It is his initiative to call us powerfully into salvation. He has called us to Christ, called us to glory, and called us to a life of holiness. We've seen the source of this effective call to salvation. But the verse also has something else to say about this call. It teaches us, secondly, the basis. We've seen the source, but now we see the basis of the effectual call to salvation. What is the basis of salvation? On what basis does God save sinners? A few days ago in a restaurant, the owner posed this question to those of us who were there. He asked, what is the difference between what you believe and what the Catholic Church believes. And immediately a number of issues sprang to mind. The dividing line between evangelicals and Catholics is great. We divide on many issues. But the parting of the way, the central issue in the parting of the way between us and Catholics and those of that persuasion surrounds the issue of how one is saved. On what basis are we saved? For Catholics, men, sinners are saved by grace. But they also state that we are saved by our good works, that our good works are indispensable for our salvation. as evangelicals, Throughout the centuries have denied that our good works play a part in salvation. Now Paul is calling Timothy, is calling him to suffer for the gospel. And he tells him that God has saved him, that his God has called him effectively into salvation. It's God's initiative. And then he tells him the reason you should stand is because the basis on which you have been called is not your works. See, this is what verse 9 says. Who was saved us and called us with a holy calling. And here it is. He's going to tell them how how he's saved. He's going to tell them the basis on which he's saved. And he first of all expresses it negatively. He says, not according to our works. I don't know if there's anything clearer. Not according to our works. Negatively. It's a major, major theme in Paul in writing. All of you, at least most of you, who are believers, know when you read in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, Paul insists, for by grace are you saved, through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and here it is, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Apostle Paul, in dealing with a question of justification, how does a sinner stand before the throne of God, the judgment seat of God, and God pronounces him not guilty? How is it that we can be pronounced, though we are sinners, not guilty? Is it because of what we have done? Paul says, to him who does not work, but believes his faith, is credited to him as righteousness. It just simply means that God credits us with righteousness without our works. Why does the Bible insist on this? And by the way, I can point you to other texts. Again, in the pastoral epistles, for instance, in Titus 3, 4, and 5, Paul says, But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 4 and 5. You see, God saves us, not on the basis of works. And I want to pause here to underline that. Why is it that our works are not factored into salvation. Why is it that what we do cannot save us? Well, let me give you two reasons and then move on. First, the good works that you and I do are what we are supposed to do, are what we are created to do by God. This is our duty. You know, it's the husband's duty to care for his wife, to take out the trash, uh, to cut the lawn, I know some of your husbands are shaking your head, but I know you don't do that, but it's our duty to do it. We don't go to our wives and say, you know what, I need $100 to be able to cut the grass. You've got to pay me to take out the trash. Well, it's our duty. When we get into marriage, we sign up for some things. We sign up to help our wives and to do the heavy lifting. That's part of marriage. We don't expect to be paid. It's our duty. And when God made us and brought us into the world, he brought us as his creatures that we are to serve him. He doesn't have to pay us back for serving him. It is what we should be doing. And when we have done all, we should say, Lord, we are unprofitable servants. So not only are we created, and this is our duty, to do good works. The problem is that good works are never good enough. what god demands from us if we are to go to heaven is perfection we tend to lose that in the debate about how we get to heaven be he perfect as your heavenly father is perfect it's a very high call our good works are riddled with imperfections so we must discount our good works in fact the bible describes our good works as Filthy rags, menstruous cloth of a woman. Can't get any worse. So we need a righteousness and the good works of somebody else, which is Christ the Lord. So Paul tells Timothy, I want you to stand for the gospel and I want you to suffer for it because God has called you effectively to salvation. And he called you not because you were good enough, not because you deserved it. He called you. Not on the basis of your works. And then he tells him positively. He tells him how God did not call him. But now he tells him how God calls and the basis of God's call. In verse 9, he continues. He says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but here's the basis. But according to his own purpose and grace. Positively. The basis on which God has called us is according to God's purpose. And there the word is plan. It's referring to God's eternal plan. There's a little poem entitled, The Man Without a Plan. And in it, a young lady is quite disenchanted with the man that she loved. She's telling him, you know, I I am prepared to stay home and take care of you if that's what you want. I'm prepared to go to work and to work hard to help you. But you don't seem to have a plan. He had no plan for marriage. So she entitled the, the poem, A Man Without a Plan. There are many guys who are dating girls who are like this fellow. He's a man without a plan. There's no plan there. But you see, God always has a plan. When God created the world, He did so from a blueprint that He had in His own mind. That you and I must know that everything that happens in this world is under the purpose and plan of God. Everything that occurs in your own life is controlled by God who has a plan for you. And even now that plan is being worked out whether you understand it or not because God does all things according to the counsel of his will. He does everything according to his plan and purpose. And we are saved on the basis of God's plan because our salvation is not an accident. We didn't fall into salvation. We didn't stumble into salvation. Paul tells Timothy that God has called you. God saved you and called you, not on the basis of your work, but on the basis of his purpose, his plan. A plan that he has enacted in eternity past. A plan that began with his choice of you in election and a plan that will come, and has come to fruition when, he, when, when you've been called into salvation. He says that this, this basis of salvation is according to God's plan, God's purpose, God's will, referring to God's decision to save in eternity, and to God's grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God to undeserving, ill-deserving, and hell-deserving sinners. It is God's unfathomable and inestimable kindness to those who don't deserve it. How are you saved? Not on the basis of works, but on the basis of God's purpose or God's eternal plan and on the basis of his kindness, his grace. We've seen two things, two major things. First, we've seen the source of the effective call, which is God. We have seen the basis, which is God's purpose and grace. But thirdly, We see the sphere in which God calls. The effective call of God comes. Paul goes on to tell us, having told us that we were not saved by our works, but according to God's purpose and grace. Then he says that this grace was given us, verse 9, in Christ before time began. The sphere in which God calls us and saves us is Christ. And what he's saying is, God save us by grace. But this grace was given to us in Christ before time began. And what Paul is emphasizing is what he does in Ephesians chapter 1. That all blessings, all spiritual and temporal blessings come to us in Christ. Nothing comes from the Father directly to you but in and through Jesus Christ. And he says, grace, the grace by which we have been saved has been given to us, but it has been given to us in and through Jesus. That is, it is only as you are in relationship with Christ that you receive saving grace. Paul goes on and he says that God has given us grace, that is the grace to save us in Christ in eternity, before time began. But he says, but this grace has now been revealed in verse 10. This grace has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This saving grace of God was manifested to us when Jesus came into the world. His incarnation, his taking of flesh was a revelation of God's grace. But it is particularly at the cross that we see the grace of God that saves us. If you want to know the kindness of God, if you want to know the love of God, if you want to know the the, the undeserved favor of God to you, you've got to look at the cross. Because it is Jesus Christ who took up our sins, who went to the cross, who bore them on the cross. He is the grace of God personified. It is when Christ carried our sins, paid for them by his blood on the cross, that we see the magnitude of the grace of God. You and I cannot be saved except we are saved by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And his kindness and the kindness of God is revealed when he bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. Now Paul tells Timothy that this grace which saves him has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And it produces two effects. First of all, he tells them in verse 10 that this grace has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And this is what he has done. He has first of all abolished death. Now we must not take from that that Paul is saying that because Christ died for us on the cross, we cannot die or face physical death. Christians die all the time. That's a reality. But how does he abolish death? Well, first of all, he abolished, nullified spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God. It is hell for the Christian. You see, he abolished spiritual death. He delivered us from eternal separation from God. But he abolished death in the sense that he removed the sting of physical death. That we no longer as believers have to live in the fear of death. Death Will not separate us from god death leads us into the presence of god and that is why paul could say in 1 corinthians 15 54 and 55 "O death where is thy sting O hades where is thy victory death is the last enemy that also one day god will indeed cast into the sea of fire in revelation 20 verse 14. so christ has come and by his appearance and by his death on the cross, he has removed from us its spiritual and eternal death and he has nullified physical death because it can no longer separate us from God. But he has also brought life and immortality to light to the gospel. What is he saying is that when Christ came, he brought eternal life. He calls it life and immortality. What is the same thing? In the Old Testament... The prophets and the writers of the Old Testament had pictures and glimpses of eternity and life beyond the grave. Job, who was a patriarch, perhaps lived around the time of Abraham, could say, I know that my Redeemer lives and after worm has destroyed this body, yet in this flesh I shall see God. He believed in life after death. But it is very clear that the Old Testament did not fully grasp life after death so it is when christ appeared christ who is the grace of god it is when he came and when he died and when particularly he rose from the dead that we have a glimpse that there is indeed life after death we can now understand that you see Eternity is not just some fictive idea. It is not just something that we think about and we wish for. reality is that eternity is to be found in Jesus who lived, who died and rose again. And so he, by his resurrection, has brought to life this reality that there is life after death. And so in summary, we see Paul's description of salvation as an effective call of God a call that originates from God himself. He is the initiative of this call. This call is on the basis not of what we have done, but God's purpose, God's deliberate plan in eternity, and God's grace in time. But this salvation, which he calls the effective call, has come to us through Jesus Christ, who appeared for us and died for us and rose for us and has given us life and the immortality. God is the one who calls. And this passage here this morning invites those of us who hear the call of God to respond. You know, you, you and I receive many calls in a given day. We, you may get a call from your mom checking upon you. How are you doing? Are you eating well? Are you behaving yourself properly, not bringing shame on the family? You may get a friend, a call from a friend or from a coworker about some piece of software you're working on. And then you get calls, if you have a caller ID, from unknown. Most of those calls that we get from unknown, we don't answer. We pretend we're not there. The call which comes from God is not a call from an unknown. It's a call from the Heavenly Father. The one who created you in his own image. It comes from the king of glory, the king of the ages. It comes from him who has no beginning and no end. The one who knows all things, who is the alpha and the omega. It comes from the king of glory and the Lord of life. And this call, a call that God issues to you, is a personal call. I don't know if you've ever been in a room or at a function where you feel a loss. You're the only person there. You don't know anybody. You're in a crowd, but you, you don't have anybody there that you know. You, you're alone. You start wondering, you know, what am I doing here? You would like to make a discreet exit if you could. And then behind you, somebody calls your name. When you hear that, there's surprise. And yet uh, you're flushed with a sense of happiness because at least somebody recognized you. You see, when God calls, it's not a general nameless call. He addresses you. He knows where you live, and he knows your circumstances. He knows you personally, and he calls you by name. And it's a call, first of all, to turn from sin. To leave behind the lifestyle that he finds displeasing. A lifestyle that does not take into account God. A life that you do not live and do everything that you ought to do for his glory. A life that is lived only for pleasure and for self. He calls you to turn from your sins and from self to Christ. But it is a call to believe in Christ. It is a call to take Christ. To embrace him, to say that he is mine and I am his. It's a call to commit to Jesus. him who loves you and died for you and rose again you see there is a call to you this morning to take Christ to embrace him to follow him to give your heart and your life to live for his glory why because he is the Savior he is the one who died for your sins he's the one who rose for your justification and he calls you regardless of your past not to depend upon your good works but to depend upon His grace. As human beings, we have a very uncomfortable relationship with grace. I suspect that we don't like the word grace because we like to revel in our own achievements. We are kind of people who want to say, you know, I, I pull myself up by my bootstraps. Nobody helped me along the way, although I don't think it's possible. You know, you know for, for many, their favorite Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. The only problem with that is that that verse is not in the Bible. It's a statement of Benjamin Franklin. We, we don't like to feel that we depend upon another. And mean, it, it seems that even as Christians, you know, we, we, we also at times are uncomfortable with the language of Grace. As an old scottish preacher ceremony was preaching complaining that it seems that when christians are praying they are praying oh god thank thank you that i don't have to depend on you we have a difficulty with grace but the good news is that god calls you not on the basis of what you have done but calls you according to his purpose and grace he says come to me all of you who are weary and are heavily and i will give you rest I I don't know about your particular circumstance, but they are known to God. And he's calling you to make a radical break with your past life. To turn over a new page. To give your heart and life. My son, he says, give me your heart. Give me the control center of your being. Make me first. Put me first. Honor me and I will honor you. It's a call, listen, it's a call, John Calvin says, a call in which God gives you the pledge of salvation. That he who comes to me, I, the Lord says, will never turn you away. I will never cast you out. That those who come to him, he pledges salvation. He pledges to wipe out all your sins. He promises to give you new life, eternal life. There's a call from God do you hear the call because listen those who are truly God's children will hear my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me you see you may be dead in your sins but if you belong to Christ he will call you and he will open your ears and give you spiritual power and you will believe because you see God is a God of great power will you take him today To be your Lord and your Savior. If you hear him calling you gently, come home. But know that if you are a Christian, God is also constantly calling you. He's calling you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To walk in a manner that is appropriate for God. Pleasing to God. He calls you to stand for him. To put off the old man and to put on the new man. He calls you like Paul called Timothy by the spirit. To be a suffering for the gospel. And you see the God not only calls you to live holy. He calls you to serve him. And to identify with his cause. You need to know that Christianity is not a popularity contest. Christianity is not for the weak hearted. It is not for those who are faint hearted and cowards. To be a Christian requires great courage and boldness. Because when you trust in Christ, men and women are going to think that you are intellectually deficient. They're going to think that you have lost not one but two screws. They're going to think that there's something wrong upstairs. You're going to be ridiculed and you may even be persecuted. To be a Christian is what it really means to be truly a man. It calls for spiritual courage. But you see, the courage to live, the courage to serve, does not come from you. It comes from the power of God. Paul says to Timothy, be a suffering by the power of God. And the God who gave you his power, who gave you efficient grace to save you, will also give you sufficient grace to live the Christian life. You're not going to live it by your strength. But he calls you to commit to a new way of life and to depend upon his strength and upon his grace. Have you been called by the Lord? Did you hear that call one day? That called you into relationship with Christ? A call to believe. And oh, my dear friends, a call to belong. Did you receive that call? You need to know then that God will never, ever, Change his mind. He has called you to salvation. And he will never go back on his call. In Revelation, or rather in Romans 11 and 29, Paul says, the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God calls you to salvation, he doesn't undo the call. When he gives you salvation, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't take it back. And you may indeed feel that you don't belong. You may suffer from fear. You may be criticized by others that you aren't quite the Christian you ought to be. But the call of God that you have experienced will never be revoked. You see, God loves you as though you are the only person in the world to be loved. He called you as though you are the only person in the world whom he could call. And when he loves you, He loves you forever. And when he calls you, he calls you forever. He never goes back. He calls you to believe and he calls you to belong. And that forever. I want you to know that if you are a believer whom God has called, you have good grounds to rejoice. Why? Because the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and 28, for all things work together for good to those who love God and, and what? And are called according to his purpose. All things. The Apostle Paul does not say that all things are good, he doesn't say you're going to be immune from suffering. When you become a believer, your friends and family will betray you. You will at times get ill. You may face deprivation. You may not always have the money you want to have. You may suffer injustice in your workplace. There are hardship in the Christian life. But what God does promise is that he will take all the good and all the bad and he will work them together and they will produce good. He will work all things together for good. He will take the bad circumstances in which you are, and He will a- be able by His power to transmute that so that it works for your eternal good. What are you going through? What hardship are you facing? You are God's child, called by Him. He's going to work it out for your good. The hymn writer picks up in Isaiah 43. And he says these words, and I'll leave them with you. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of war shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress.